Thanks, Lily. Uh, it's great to be here tonight as we hear God's Word spoken. Uh, my name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here uh, at Uni Church and Auckland EV, and one of the dads. If there is another dad out there for some reason, great, welcome. Uh, that's awesome. Why don't we pray together that um, as we think through what God has to say to us tonight, He might show us what is truly amazing in this passage. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come together on this evening to think through what you have to say to us, we ask that we might see what you have in store so clearly tonight, that your spirit would comfort us with the hope that is to come, that your word would confront us with what you've done for us in Jesus, and that we might go away tonight changed. Lord, it is so exciting to hear you speak. And we ask that through your spirit, that word that was just read and as we dwell on it now, would come alive in our lives. Amen. Well, the images have been horrendous, haven't they? Pictures of dead Syrian children washed up on European beaches. A distraught father having lost hope. An auntie wondering why she ever paid the price. Grief, hopelessness have gripped our world this week in a way that we haven't seen for a while. If you haven't seen the news over the past week, the media has flooded us with images of a three-year-old boy, Aylan Kurdi. He's washed up into a Turkish beach on Wednesday where He, his mother and his five-year-old brother were escaping Syria in an overcrowded life raft and drowned across the Mediterranean, trying to get away from, from what is happening in Syria, seeking refuge. What these images that we've seen have done is brought the reality and the hopelessness of death to the forefront of our hearts and minds. I don't know if you felt that this week, if you felt the weight of seeing those pictures, if you have, or, or just hearing about them now. Why? It's so hopeless, isn't it? As a society, we don't like death, and, th- and rightly so. Death is horrific. And so what we do as, as a culture, as a society, is we, we try and suppress it in any way we can. Have you noticed how much of the cosmetic section is focused on getting rid of the signs of aging? We don't like aging because of where it leads, not just because it's got wrinkles. Or we move those who are sick into hospitals for right care, but we also get to distance ourselves a little from sickness. And death gets sanitized, pushed away. We don't see it like humanity did in the days of old. It's not in our faces as much as what it was in the past because we've made it sterile, we've pushed it away, out of sight and almost definitely out of mind. But this week it's been a little hard to miss, hasn't it? It's confronted the world in the face. What are we to think about death? How do we process this reality that Every single person in this room will face. How do we process what happened to this family, these children, this mother? Well, God in his great mercy is not silent on this issue. 
And his great plan, he so happened this sermon to be planned for this week and this passage to come up that speaks on exactly this issue. The issue that would confront our world right now. What do we do with the hopelessness of death? What have you got to say to us, God? How do we understand it? Well, Paul begins this next section of the letter with a word from God that is very clearly about this very issue. Have a look at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way. God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep through Jesus. Now, when Paul here says asleep, he's not talking about the type of sleep I do at night, where when my head hits the pillow within 40 seconds, uh, I'm gone. No matter what child's crying, I don't really wake up. Like, it's hard to raise me, which is kind of a blessing. It's not as nice for Sarah, uh, because I don't hear them as much. I'm gone, like I'm out of it. Jesus isn't saying... Okay, I've come to help all you heavy sleepers. I've come to kind of wake you up. And, and No, this here is talking about death. But it's an interesting view of death that it is just but a sleep. I want to put to you tonight that if this sentence is true, it's one of the most powerful sentences in the history of humanity, isn't it? Do you see that? For it tells us that there is hope beyond death. There's hope beyond death. Death is not the end. For this little church in Thessalonica, they were concerned that Jesus had not yet come back, even though it was quite early. They're like, when is Jesus' return? What is happening? And there are people who have trusted in Jesus, put their life in his hands, and then since died and we haven't seen Jesus. What will happen to them? And this expectation of Jesus' return at any moment, and we're going to see that next week played out in, in very clear detail. What do we do with those who fall asleep? How do we know what happens after death with them? Well, what Paul writes here tells us that the hope that they have in the gospel looks back. And this word hope, it doesn't just mean like, oh, you know, I hope I'm going to get an A in my next essay. You know, that's that. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? But who knows if it's going to be reality. Like, it's just a a wish, a dream. I hope I'm going to win the lottery. That'd be great, but I need to buy a ticket. And there's a whole heap of things about whether gambling's right or not. But, you know, we have these ideas of what hope means. That's not what Paul is talking about here. And you'll see that as we go through. The hope he speaks of is a certain hope. It's a foregone conclusion. Why is that? Because hope looks backward. Or for you that way. Hope looks backward. All right? Historicity for, for the Christian faith matters. You see, unlike Islam that says Jesus didn't die. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Islam says that Jesus, who they see as a true prophet of God, did not die on the cross. That, that, that a true prophet of God could never die that way. And so someone switched the body somewhere. And they don't base that on any kind of uh, eyewitness evidence. They just go, this can't have happened. As we read the writings of Muhammad in the 7th century, so, you know, 600 years later, we think that that's what happened. That's our view of the events around Jesus. But the problem is, all the secular sources and all the Christian sources, basically the rest of kind of ancient history and ancient historians all say Jesus 
from Nazareth did die on a cross. The hope we have is grounded in Jesus' death on the cross. Because those closest to him reported that that death wasn't just any death. Wasn't a death just like some little three-year-old boy, you know, kind of looking innocent and well, wish it didn't happen. But it was a death that was in our place. Let me personalize that a little. It was your death, you. It was for you and on behalf of you. As America was being settled uh, and the kind of, uh, I don't know what you call them, that the pioneers came across the prairies. I've never read Little House on the Prairie, so I just imagine they talk about prairies. But if you've read it and this helps, great. They came across the prairies. The prairies are these kind of rolling hills that were full of grass and not kind of like your short variety. Grass is as high as a person. And what was really the dangerous thing about kind of being an American pioneer as you went across these prairies was that there were often storms and dry storms where lightning would flash and and a grass fire would start. Problem was, when you've just got rolling hills upon hills upon hills of grass as tall as a human, it's pretty hard to outrun that sort of fire coming towards you, especially when there's, a, when there's a wind coming through. And so it was quite dangerous for the wagons and the people and the horses just couldn't outrun it. And so what the, the American pioneers did was, when they saw a fire coming towards them that really would just wipe, would kill them, they'd be gone. They'd turn with their backs to the wind and they'd kind of light a fire in front of them that the wind would then pick off and that fire would then move forward. And as the approaching fire was coming, they'd stand in the place here that had already been burnt for them. And the fire would come through. And because the ground they were standing on had already been burnt, consumed, there was nothing else left to burn, the fire would just go round that spot and continue. And that would be safe. When Jesus died... It wasn't just any old death, remember, it was a death for you, it was a death in your place. You see, for all of humanity, we kind of like those American pioneers. There is a great fire coming, and the Bible calls that God's judgment. Why would, why would God want to judge us? Well, because it's what we've asked for. You, me, Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa have all done the same thing. We've said at times in our life, I don't want to treat God as God. I want to make up the rules. It's as if we've walked into the throne room of God and said, you know what, get off. I'm going to make, I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to sit on the throne and work out what I want to do with my life without any regard or respect to you. And we forget that this God that we've booted off the throne is the God who sustains every breath we have, who makes every heartbeat of ours pump. He's a God who sustains the universe and who provides life. And if you say to the life-giving God, get out of my life, then after a while, he's going to say, okay. He should say it straight away. We should not be alive right now. But he gives time for people to recognize what he's done in Jesus. But he tells us there is a fire coming. And that is the judgment for us booting God off his throne. If we say, I don't want the life-giving God in my life, there will come a time where he says, okay, And he takes what he has given to us away, and that is our very lives. Death is the result of rejecting the creator of the universe and trying to be king ourselves. But what Jesus claimed about his death was that it was in our place. That he faced that wrath of God, that the fire of God's anger for 
all of humanity turning their backs on God, that he absorbed that for us. At that moment when Jesus was pinned to a cross and he cried out those famous words, do you remember? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, the, the, the rebellion, the, the rejection of God of the whole world was being focused down at one point in time and being burnt onto Jesus like a, like a big magnifying glass. He was suffering the penalty for what we had done. He was being burnt so that you and I could stand in the place that he was burnt for us when that fire called judgment comes through. Jesus' death was for you, was in your place. He died. So death does not have to have the same impact on us. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, says it really clearly. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous, the perfect one, for the unrighteous, the one who deserved judgment, that he might bring you to God. Let me say it a different way. Jesus was burnt on the cross with the judgment of God for what we had all done. The perfect one was burnt so that us who deserve to be burnt could go free and escape God's eternal judgment and have relationship with God. Do you see what Jesus has done? Jesus' death was just not an innocent death, but it was a death in your place. And if you trust in him, if you put your life in his hands, if you say my only hope when that fire called judgment comes through is that Jesus has been burnt on my behalf on that cross 2,000 years ago, that my sins were nailed to that tree and were paid for in Jesus then there's a phenomenal blessing that Paul says to us will apply to us too. See, because Jesus, he didn't merely sleep. His death when he died was a real death. It wasn't just kind of a quick nap and then he resuscitated and came back. Jesus died in our place. He faced our death. So all that we need face is merely sleep. Is merely death for a short time. Because Jesus' death wasn't all there was to know about Jesus. This historical event of his death on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate wasn't all there was to know. So the claim of history is that Jesus didn't stay dead. That he rose from the dead. Death did not defeat him. If, If you look at the kind of history books, if you see the claims of the secular sources and the Christian sources, the Christian faith spread so quickly. Around the time of, of Jesus' death, and people said, you know what? We believe he's risen from the dead. People died for that claim. Why would you die for a lie? The, the, the news of Jesus, this Christian faith spread across the ancient Near East in the very time when you could go and ask someone, had you seen him rise from the dead? He appeared to 500 at once. He appeared to many people. And at the time of writing this letter, you could go and ask people, did you really see Jesus alive? They would say, yes. I touched his hands. I saw him speak. I saw him eat. History says Jesus rose again. It's the only way that makes sense of the fact of this Christian faith spreading. I've never seen anything else that makes more sense than he actually rose. 
And what that shows is that the penalty for what we had done that had been laid on Jesus had been completely extinguished. For the penalty was death. And Jesus died and then rose again, showing that it was completely poured out. He had been burned for us and death had no lasting effect on him. Do you see that? Have you ever met anyone for whom death has no effect? For whom they live forever? The claim of history is that there has been one. And his name is Jesus. And what Paul says is phenomenally profound. It comes under this kind of theological idea of union with Christ. You want to explore that's one of the key ideas of the Bible, being united with Jesus. He says this, if you are with Jesus in his death, if, if he died and paid the price for you, if you were standing in that burnt spot for him and you say his death was my death, he faced the penalty I deserved for me, then the benefits of his death are applied to you. And so are the benefits of his resurrection. If you're in Christ, if you've put your life in, in his hands and said, I trust Jesus died for me, then you can have that same hope, that same confidence, that certainty that you will rise again. Why? Because it's based in the past. It's based in what Jesus did. He's already risen. This is a certain hope. Look at verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep through Jesus. Since we believe, we trust that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep through Jesus. If you trust in Jesus' death in your place, then his death was your death. You've already faced the consequences for turning your back on God. And though you may die, those who trust in him will be raised from the dead, just as Jesus was raised. Do you see how profound that idea is? So easy to sit here and just say, oh yeah, I've heard it before, Jesus rose again, we'll be raised from the dead. The claim is you can be raised from the dead. You can live forever. Death will have no lasting effect on you if you are in Jesus. If that is true, that is phenomenal news, isn't it? For one, it means no more anti-aging cream. doesn't matter. We're going to get new bodies. <laughs> Hope looks back. It's grounded in the past. But it also looks forward. Look at verse 15. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who've fallen asleep. Paul here assumes, as was the, the kind of what all Christians assumed at this point, that Jesus would come back. Check out 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19 later, or Matthew 24, 30 to 31, and kind of read some of what happened there. What Paul's saying is that it is certain, because it's grounded in the past, Jesus is coming back. Uh, Peter tells us the only reason that um, 
we're waiting, he hasn't returned yet, is because he wants more people to come and put their trust in this burnt spot called Jesus. But what Paul's saying to us here is that it doesn't matter if you're alive at the time or if you've already died. If you are in Jesus, it's just as if death is sleep. What matters is, are you in Jesus or not? Look at what happens. And here is a clear picture of what will happen in the future, this thing that we look forward to, this certain hope. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What's on view here is a declaration A declaration that the king has come. It's an announcement. Jesus himself, the king, has arrived. He is coming back. He's coming down from heaven with a shout. uh, With the archangel's voice and with the trumpet. This whole idea of what's happening is kind of like what would happen in ancient times when a king or an emperor would come to a town. And what would happen is they would, um, the people from the town would send out someone to meet that person. Then meet them and kind of then they'd come into the town together and proclaim the emperor is here. That's exactly what's happening now. The king has arrived. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. Did Jesus expect it? Yes. What did he say in that Lord's Prayer, if you know it? His disciples one day came up to him and said, teach us, how should we pray? Here Jesus has a clear moment to kind of explain to the whole world about how we should pray. And what does he say? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, great be your name, worshipped be your name. Your kingdom come, is the next bit I wanted to make sure was in the right order. Your kingdom come. What is he saying? We're to pray for the kingdom to come. Wasn't the kingdom already there when Jesus came? No, because the king was coming back. He was telling them to be praying for the moment that Jesus returned, that he would come back and those who already died would rise from the dead and meet him in the sky. Have a look, um, this idea of, of a trumpet being blown, exactly what Isaiah talks about. The Old Testament had promised this, Isaiah 27 verse 13. On that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those lost in the land of Assyria will come, as well as those dispersed in the land of Egypt, and they will worship Yahweh, the Lord, at Jerusalem on the holy mountain. This trumpet blast is is a figurative picture of Jesus, the king, returning, his kingdom coming. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is talking about the end. Not some intermediary moment, but the end of all things. Have a look, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. What's on view at this moment is Jesus' return. The King has come. The end is at hand and those who are in Jesus, who are united to their King, will have something amazing to look forward to. Death has no longer a hold on us. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds and will meet the Lord in the air. 
And so we will always be with the Lord. That word meet is, has a particular nuance to it. It's that idea of they would go out to the emperor and meet him outside the town, then come in together. Those who are alive at the time Jesus comes back will meet him in the air and then come down and rule with the king forever. New creation, new bodies, no more mourning or crying or pain. Right relationship with one another, right relationship with God. Sin is dealt with finally as it is. The king has come. What's on view here is the end. No intermediary period, but the end of all things. Some people have this view of scripture, um, of a thing called the rapture, which just kind of comes from Latin and means leaving. Um, That's kind of what's going on. They say that when Jesus comes back, um, Christians will disappear from those on the earth. There's this view that basically what happens is Christians will disappear from the earth uh, for seven years. There'll be three and a half years of good, three and a half years of bad, and then Jesus will come back. And in that three and a half, that seven-year period, all the, the non-Christians that are left will have time to kind of come back to Jesus. But the picture that's on view here isn't of, of giving time. It's of the Christians quickly going up to the sky as the king comes. It's not like everyone stays in the sky like, the, like some kind of angel ad where we all got fluffy clouds and we float around. That's, that's not the picture of heaven. The picture of heaven we have is a human flesh, Jesus, ruling with us in our fleshly bodies. Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's a, a bodily resurrection. We will be flesh and blood on a new creation, a new earth. What's on view here isn't some moment where the Christians will disappear for seven years but it's the moment of the king's arrival. The dead will rise first, and then those who are alive, who trust in Jesus, will meet him in the clouds and come down as we hear the words, the king has arrived. The archangel announces him. Here is the king. The trumpet sounds, and the whole world will know the end has come. Are you ready to meet your maker? For Paul says he is coming. And that day will come, we'll see next week, like a thief in the night. And for those who trust in Jesus, what we hope in now, what we look forward to, that faith that we have will be the reality we experience. The spiritual reality of what we are becomes a physical reality. We'll see Jesus face to face. The creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. Do you see the joy Paul has at this moment? Do you see what hope this is? Because it's grounded in the past and looks forward to what will happen in the future. We have this certain hope to see Jesus as he is. That's the claim of the Bible. That's the claim of history. But the hope doesn't end there. This hope, this, this future, this physical reality will be forever. Do you know how long forever is? Right? It's a long time. I was showing to someone this morning who'd done a quick bit of the math. They're like, say I live 80 years. And then I think, you know, I'm just imagine living for 10,000 years, right? Imagine that for a second. Now, that's longer probably than most of our kind of ancient history kind of can. That's, that's a long time, 10,000 years. The life you live now is but, I think, 0.03%, 80 years. 
someone else can do the math if it's faster. Anyone want to correct me? Kind of math freaks in the room? Not great. There we go. So 0.03% is what my life, my 80 years is now compared to 10,000. You know what? When you get to the end of 10,000, there's 10,000 more and another 10,000 more and another 10,000 more because it does not end. It does not end forever. That's the picture here that we have in front of us. This relationship with God, with Jesus will be forever. How crazy it is to swap a little tiny blip called 80 years and go, oh, what I do now and having the best life now is way more important than forever. I can keep walking around the whole campus for like forever. I want to swap this for that. The hope we have lasts forever. It is eternal. What I love about this view of the end times, people have got so many different views, like, oh, this will happen, and then we're waiting for this sign, and then that thing, and all these kind of things, and then this will happen, and these people will go there, and there's all this stuff people have. What I love here is, this is one of the clearest points we've got in Scripture about what will happen. Paul's writing a plain letter. It's not kind of that crazy type of writing called apocalyptic writing. If you're into your Bible genres, apocalyptic writing is often symbolic and you're like, what are you smoking? Like there's something going on. You read Revelation is like, John has three takes at the whole book of explaining the same events three times. You're like, which angle? And it's, there's all these symbols in there. Here, Paul just writes this letter to this church saying, do you know what? If you're in Jesus, you will live forever. Forever, forever. But when it gets to the detail, Paul kind of comes to this great fact. He's like, you will live forever. And then he stops. He doesn't fill in anything else because there's, (laughs) what else do you want to be filled in? You're going to live with Jesus, the king of the universe forever. What more detail do you need? What better could there be? He's already created everything good in the world that you like now. You're going to be with him. The one who spoke and creation came into being. Why do you need more information than that about what it will look like, what it will feel like? You'll be with Jesus. You won't be going like, oh, I wish I had some better shoes. (laughs) You know, oh. I was really hoping that, um, you know, in heaven we get to drive Lamborghinis because I really don't like Ferraris. They just keep breaking down. And, you know, we won't be like, oh, will, will, there be, will I be able to see and recognize everyone? And there's all these sort of questions we have. You, Paul says, you, Jesus, forever. We're like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> and with that comes this one point of great assurance. Who will we be with? The one who died in our place and who rose. What's that function of forever mean? What assurance does it give us? The power of God will never be defeated or contested again. From that moment, Jesus returns, the king is back. There is no other competition No other challenge, no one else to kind of stray. This is what God has been pointing forward to for all eternity. Jesus is king, full stop. He is the ruler. There is no one who can rebel. All will be under his authority. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, will you confess that now or when he comes back? And you've rejected him and you've gone, it's too late. Sometimes I hear people say, that's pretty slack. We know if everyone's going to confess Jesus is Lord, then why does he wait until then to kind of make us? 
I don't think at that point, when Jesus returns, people will go, ah, oh, I picked the wrong horse. You know, I should have gone with Jesus. I think we'll still be going, no, I want to be king. Get out of my life. If we haven't made him king now. What makes you think you're going to make him king when he comes back? Point is, when he comes back, he is the king. There is no other option. When you recognize the hope that he's laid out, the assurance that we have in the gospel, why would you go anywhere else for satisfaction, for life? What more could someone offer you than eternity? (laughs) An eternity of perfect relationship with God and with one another in the world that he created with every good blessing in him. What, What more could you want? What could be so important that you will swap 80 years for forever? Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer in 1860. He's married to his wife, Anna. They had a successful law practice. They were quite well off. They had five children until 1870 when scarlet fever struck and killed their only son. Death struck this family in a way that was hard to see a child die. A year later, uh, the great Chicago fire came through and destroyed every single one of their investment properties. Their savings, everything that they'd worked for, everything in that little 80 years that they'd tried to see. Their family was kind of disappearing. Their investments were disappearing. And at this moment, his, his four daughters and his wife, he said to them, we need to get away from this. Horatio and Anna were Christians. They, they trusted in Jesus. And they knew of, of a guy they were quite good friends with, a guy called D.L. Moody. He was a Christian speaker and, and traveled through Europe telling people about Jesus. They decided they'd get out of Chicago. They'd go on a holiday. They'd go away and just get some kind of space from this devastation they'd felt as a family and so they they booked the ship and they're about to go when a business thing came up and Horatio couldn't go with them he still sent them on their way and said you guys go I'll catch one a few later and I'll catch up to you but we you need to have this holiday you need to get away and so off they went to Europe to England uh, to have a break and to help in this evangelistic campaign with Moody to share the news of Jesus with those around them Nine days later, Horatio received a telegram from his wife. It read only two words, saved alone. The ship they were all on collided at sea with another vessel. All four daughters died. Anna was knocked unconscious uh, and fell onto a plank and somehow the plank held her up. So she survived miraculously this whole ordeal. But his whole family by his wife were dead. Saved alone was all that she could say. Horatio straight away left his business things, boarded the next ship and set sail to be with his wife in England. And as the ship passed over the place where his four daughters drowned, he penned the lyrics of a hymn called it is well. And I can't help but think that this very passage in 1 Thessalonians was what he was meditating on and on that ship that day that he wrote these words. As he reflected on the God who loved him so much that even though death can happen, 
Even though tragedy occurs, God had saved him and God had hope. Just listen to these words. They're up on the screen. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Friends, in the news about Jesus, the gospel, there is great hope. Death will most probably touch every single one of us in this room. But if you trust in Jesus, death will not have the last word with you. Because of Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection, death has been conquered. Life has been offered. And there will come a day where with a loud command and the announcing shout of the archangel, the one who spoke in creation came into being, will roll back the clouds and descend. And those who put their life in his hands, who've trusted in Jesus, will meet him in the sky and come down, never to see death again. No more sickness, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Life in right relationship with the creator of all things. For those who trust in Jesus, death is but a short sleep. And we will be with him always. So Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Build one another up. Let these words be on your lips and in your hearts constantly. Do you see how huge this is? This is the greatest problem our world has ever faced and we've got it handed to us in what Jesus has done in our place on that cross, offering us life. If you trust in Jesus, then let it transform how you live. Pain will come. Life will deal us blows that are difficult and hard. Things won't always go the way that we thought they would. But our sin has been nailed to a cross. We will bear the consequences of that sin no more if we trust in Jesus. Life has been offered. And the day will come when our faith shall be sight and we will see our Lord descend. That is what we look forward to. That is the future. That is the certain hope we have. Is this not the most powerful message you have ever heard? If this were true, 
how I would live so differently. How I would change what I live for and what matters and what I say and what opportunities I take and what opportunities I don't and what things I seek with my little 80 years. So don't be ashamed of this message. If your life is in Jesus, if you are united to him in his death, you will be united with him in his resurrection. It's news that this city needs to hear, doesn't it? If this is true, doesn't this city need to hear this news? Death has been defeated. Life has been offered to you in Jesus. It's not a pie in the sky. It's grounded in history. It's news that we as a church need to keep reminding one another on that we might keep our eyes focused on what matters, on what's important. It's news that my heart and your heart needs to be continually soaked in. For we have eyes that just keep going back to the little 80 years. We forget what Jesus did. That his death was our death. And that his life will be our life on that day he returns. If you have not yet put your hope in Jesus. If you have not yet said, I trust you. I want to stand where you have been burnt. I want the benefits of you to be applied to me. You are the king. And I want to be on that side of forgiveness when you return with that trumpet sound. Then I want to say, come today, tonight. What's stopping you? I'm not saying just make a frivolous decision just to jump in because of what some guy said one night, but here's the thing. Why wouldn't you? What better solution do you have? What better offer is on the table? If, this, if these events have happened, you no longer need to fear death. Images can come on the screen and you can know for you <laughs> that death will not be the end. Do you see who Jesus is? He's died in your place. He's the one who's conquered death for you, for you. He's the one who offers life. That when he returns, you might live forever. Don't let your friends grieve your death more than they need to. Don't let your family grieve your death more than they need to. Don't let your God grieve your death more than he needs to. For he has paid the price for you. Jesus has died in your place. The penalty is paid Life is offered. There is no reason to grieve death anymore if you trust in Jesus. Won't you make that decision today to come and put your life in his hands? Or if you've done that and, and you're living as a Christian, but kind of like, oh, is, how important is this? See, this is the news that changed the universe and will change your eternity. Hold on to it. Trust him.